Wow. Holy. Our God is a great God. Well, this summer we had the pleasure of taking a family vacation in western Maine. Um, most of you know we like to head east and, and uh, into New Brunswick and rent a house and have the family over, but we just didn't want to jump through a lot of hoops to make that happen, so we, we headed west. And we headed to the New Hampshire border, an area that we'd never been before, in a little town called Stowe, not to be confused with Stowe, Vermont. There's no E on this Stowe. It's really in southwestern Maine. Um, and from there, that was our headquarters. We took little day trips and, and enjoyed the area and all that it had to offer. We went to uh, Storyland. Storyland rocks. If you, <laughs> seriously, if you've not been there, go. It's awesome. And um, we went mining in the town of Bethel. If you've never done that, you can actually find some treasures in Bethel. And that was fun. And my wife's GPS took us on a shortcut over a mountain. <laughs> and that was not fun. All my boys behind me were having fun because every one of them knew what their father was saying. And they were right. And when there was a gate at the beginning of that road and signs, that's enough. You turn around. You don't go, where's Josh? Josh went through that almost with his camper and didn't even bother to text me and tell me. It was virtually impassable. We made it. I'm being dramatic. But it was a mountain. Anyway, on that vacation, we traveled lots of roads out in western Maine and, and areas that we had never seen, roads we had never been on, and then we came on one of our journeys to this rather obscure intersection, um, only to find an iconic main landmark, and I think Ben has a picture of this, I hope. Yes. <laughs> how many of you have seen that? Anybody, how many of you have actually been to where it is? Okay, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. So it was one of those deals where you're coming up and you have to make a turn, and we make the turn, and we head off, and I think Liz was like, hey, that's that sign. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Probably, probably one of the most photographed signs in Maine, and really, really more a demonstration of Maine humor than anything else. Um, but it does do what signs do, which is point their readers in a direction to something beyond itself, um, something greater than the sign itself. Our passage this morning in Acts deals with this issue of signs, not road signs, but miracles and wonders that function in a similar manner. They're helpful in the moment, and they point to something even greater. Our Father, we humble ourselves now as we come to sit beneath your word, asking to receive it as it is intended, to understand it as you want us to, to be blessed by it for what it teaches us about you and about how you love us and how you love your church. So for our time remaining in the word, Lord, we just pray again your spirit to lead and guide and direct us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage that we've got in front of us this morning from 
Acts chapter 5, as we make our way through this book, which is really going to take us into, into next summer, really. Um, this is a, a, a short passage, and therefore you may, you may think this will be a short sermon. <laughs> I think it will be. I think it actually will be, because what we have here is a passage of Scripture. I didn't want to skip over it. I don't want to pretend like it has no meaning or bearing or isn't as important as some of the others that we're considering. But it's not a long passage. It's actually kind of a bridge passage. It gives us a picture of the apostles' work and the state of the church um, directly following the incident of Ananias and Sapphira. And you might imagine that would have sent quite a few ripples through the church and even through the community, right? The scripture tells us great fear came upon all who had heard about these things. So this bridge passage sort of gives us an idea of what's happening right after the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And then it sets the stage for what's about to happen when the apostles will be arrested and... Um, ultimately rescued from prison. So in this brief passage, we learn that despite the first negative or punitive miracle um, in the early church's history, at least that is recorded, where Ananias and Sapphira are killed because of their deception, because of their hypocrisy, the church actually has not lost the Lord's blessing. And that might have been a question that some people would have been concerned about. Have we blown it already? Have we messed this thing up? But that is not the case. The church is continuing to grow. The church is highly regarded among the people, Luke tells us. And we see that the prevalence of signs and wonders, while lending to this increased favor of the apostles uh, among the people, is also having an opposite effect on some. It is fueling the jealousy and, uh, of the religious leaders who hate the name of Jesus and who hate the teaching of Jesus. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, if you're following along. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So this is a statement of fact. Acts 5, 12 is a statement of fact, and it's not a, it's not a very flowery one, to be honest. And I might add, uh, the, Luke doesn't tell us the nature or the number of the miracles that are being performed here. He omits those details. He just states that it's happening. He omits the details, which means as much as you and I might want them, and I, I would be curious to know, right, what type of miracles are happening and where and how. If he omits them, it means we don't need to know these things or that they aren't crucial to the point he is making. Luke is simply reporting the facts which is what one ought to do when recording history. And the fact of the matter is that signs and wonders were performed among the people by the hands, or we might more properly say through the hands, the Greek, the Greek word dia, um, indicating a channel through which an act occurs, through the hands of the apostles. And the only description that Luke gives us of these things is that they are many, and that they are done regularly. So what we know is that at that time, miracles are taking place commonly and with frequency. Friends, our God is a God of miracles. He can do what he wants, when he wants, 
where he wants, how he wants, anytime he wants. There is no limit to his power, nothing save his own nature to constrain him. He can break in, he can break through, he can do anything. He can do anything. And sometimes, as we see here in the early stages of the church, he chooses to use miracles in the advancement of his perfect will. These miracles are so far occurring through a limited group, the apostles. The apostles, you may remember, are the men who had been with Jesus, who had seen uh, Jesus and been with him during his earthly ministry, and those who had seen the resurrected Jesus. They are the initial chosen conduits of Holy Spirit power. And these miracles are happening publicly. They are not happening just behind closed doors. Nobody's trying to hide anything at this stage, right? The apostles are ministering among the people. They're doing just the exact same thing they saw their master do. And they are gathering in the common area of Solomon's portico, uh, a portion of the temple area. They are still tied to their Jewish uh, roots and traditions of worship. They do not see uh, this budding Christianity as a new religion or as a rival religion, but it actually is just a, a continuation, a fulfillment of all that the scriptures promise regarding the Messiah, who is Jesus. The preaching and the teaching of Jesus and all these signs and wonders are being done in the open. Now the next verse is a little bit tricky, verse 13. A little harder to interpret. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And we can't say for sure what, uh, who Luke had in mind when he says the rest. That's the problem. Maybe he is um, referring to members of the church. Or maybe he is referring to non-committal seekers. We, we just cannot know. But in either case, it does appear that we could know this. There is a price to be paid, or potentially paid, for those who would dare to publicly join themselves to the apostles. Which is just another way of saying that discipleship is costly. Uh, that, of course, is why a lot of people don't want to follow Jesus, is because it's bound to cost them something. Cost them something in their lifestyle that they don't want to give up. Cost them friends uh, who won't want to be with them and be friends anymore if they should choose to follow Jesus. may cost uh, people physically uh, in other countries where they are, um, the church is persecuted far greater than anything we ever experienced. Discipleship is costly. Jesus never hid that. He never hid that from anybody. If you're thinking about following Jesus, then fantastic, great. It's the best decision you'll ever make in your life. But you need to know this. It will cost you to do this thing. You can expect, if you want to follow Jesus, to pay some sort of price for it. And it seems like here the fear of the religious leaders and what they could do, right? They've already dragged Peter and John off into prison. Who knows what else they could do? That seemed to be enough to, to keep some people from wanting to join uh, the apostles at Solomon's portico in public. And at the same time, however, it had nothing to do with what they thought of the Christians. So there's, a, there's some group of people, whoever they are, that doesn't want to necessarily be seen publicly, but 
they're also in awe and they also respect and they also revere what the apostles are doing and what the Christians stand for. Luke says that the, the church then was held in high esteem and that's something that we aspire to continue to do, isn't it, church? We want to be we want to conduct ourselves in such a way publicly that whether people believe what we believe or not, we would at least be held in high esteem. Uh, and despite the misgivings of some who, dared, who didn't dare to uh, publicly associate with the church, the fellowship continued to grow. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Well, it's an interesting um, way that Luke describes the growth of the church here. Believers were added to the Lord. How does one, how does one get added to the Lord? How does one get annexed? How does one get added to the Lord? It would not be by observing signs and wonders, would it? Many observe the signs and wonders of Jesus without being added to him. It would not even be by being the recipient of signs and wonders necessarily, of which there were many. Because you, you can bet that not every one of the thousands who enjoyed the free lunch that Jesus provided on a couple of occasions, right, the miraculous free lunch, yes, bring me a few fish and uh, some bread and let's just make a picnic for everybody. But you can, you can bet that not everybody who enjoyed that meal and even who knew where it came from ultimately ever trusted in Jesus. In fact, he criticizes them, right? You're, you're following me because you just want food. You, that, the only reason you're interested in me is because I fed you so that we know that even being the recipient of God's miracles doesn't always make a person a believer. And I could push this out into modern day and say, how many of you, how many people out there have been delivered by God somehow miraculously? And part of the equation was, God, if you get me out of this... <laughs> I'll serve you forever. And we get out of it. And maybe that second part loses its urgency. Yeah. How does one get added to the Lord? Because signs and wonders, seeing them and even partaking in them, doesn't necessarily equate to getting saved. No one comes to God that way. We come to God this way. We are added to the Lord by faith. Everybody who comes to be saved is saved by faith. And faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes, how? By the word of God. And this word, praise God, found a resting place in people's hearts in this early church. In part because of the signs and the wonders that were being performed all around them in great numbers, in great frequency by the apostles. Those signs and wonders were the talk of the town and they captured the imagination of the people. But more than that, they opened their ears to the potential of the gospel, right? That seems to be what's going on. The miracles are corroborating the message. And I don't say that, as some might, to diminish the awesomeness or the importance of the supernatural manifestations that are happening in that community all over the place. And I don't say that to relegate miracles to some strict 
utilitarian function. God can do what he wants to do, where he wants to do it, when he wants to do it, anytime, right? I say that to point out that there is a pattern in Scripture, a pattern in redemptive history of God using signs and wonders to, to authenticate his messengers. The miracles of the Old Testament confirmed that Moses was truly of God and showed that he represented the one true God and that he was greater, say, than Pharaoh and all the false deities of Egypt. The miracles of the prophets also confirmed that they were ordained of God, sent and chosen by the one true God who was greater, say, than the priests of Baal or the false god Baal himself. The miracles of Jesus confirmed that he was sent as a messenger from God. That's just exactly how Nicodemus put it, right? If you go to John chapter 3 and you read this account about Nicodemus who wants to meet with Jesus in the night. And of course you'll, you'll hear that people will say, well that's the time when they did scholarly discourse. I'm like, that's the time that is dark. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's the time where you can take a chance and maybe not get caught or found out. I mean, I think a lot about Nicodemus, but I'm not going to cover for him here. He's meeting with Jesus in the dark, but he says to him, because he's genuinely curious and interested and somewhat confounded, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And the signs and the wonders coming through the hands of the apostles, they also confirm that God is with them. That's what I alluded to earlier about signs when I said they are both helpful in the moment and they point to something greater. The literal word translated signs comes from a root word that means indication. And this is what signs do. Whether written signs or miraculous signs, they indicate, they point to something beyond themselves. A road sign, it would be a destination or maybe a desired behavior, stop or yield, okay? But when God is involved, what's pointed to will be a theme in scripture or a metaphor or a glimpse into the character of God or the truth of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. That's how the writer of Hebrews understood signs. In Hebrews 2, verses 3 to 4, we find a caution to those early believers to hold fast, to not neglect God's gift of salvation, to be forgiven of our sins, and granted the pledge of living eternally is a gift from heaven. We don't earn it. We can't deserve it, but it is God's good pleasure to offer it because God loves us, because he cares for us. Let it, let it sink in, friend. He wants to live eternally with us. That's why he wants us to be saved. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard such a thing and your sense of God is such that he wants you to be saved so he can suck the life out of you. So he can eradicate everything that brings you joy and fun. I can assure you this. He loves you more than you would ever know. And he wants to live with you forever and ever. 
and he wants to give you the best because he is the best. Salvation is a gift, but it's easy to sort of let that gift grow cold, to lose sight of how sweet it is, how precious it is, even how costly it is. We know that Jesus had to give himself up in order for us to be saved. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't, don't neglect that. Don't take that for granted. Don't let that go. Don't let that escape your consciousness. Keep this foremost in your thoughts, this gift of salvation. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 then, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, what's going to happen to us if we don't pay attention to this salvation? If we let it go? If we don't respond to the call to it? He said it was declared at first by the Lord, this salvation, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You see, the, the good news of salvation was, as this passage tells us, declared by Jesus first. Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He declared that he had come into this world not to condemn it, but to save it. That all who believed in him would not perish, but would come to everlasting life. He told his disciples that he would die for the sins of the world. He would give his life a ransom for many. That he would be buried. He would be killed, he would be buried, but he would rise from the dead and he would conquer the grave. And then he met them in his resurrected state and he taught them more about himself from scripture. And then he commissioned them to be his witnesses and they took those orders, and as the writer of Hebrews puts it, they attested to others what they had experienced while at the same time, so that they're out being witnesses, at the same time God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The signs and the wonders and the gifts of the Spirit at and following Pentecost were graciously given by God. They were poured out by God in number and frequency to not just bless the recipients and observers, which they did greatly, but to lend credibility to the apostles' teaching and preaching. The message from heaven through the many and regular miracles performed by the apostle is listen to these men. Listen to these men. They are my spokespersons. And it's working. God's plan is working. With signs and with wonders and with faithful proclamation, the apostles are filling Jerusalem with their teaching. More than ever before, the church was being added to. And that when you read these things, if you read them slowly and ponder them, right? More than ever before, the church was being added to. That's quite a claim when you think about what happened at Pentecost, right? Because on that day, how many souls are added? 3,000? In one day? And now the church is growing even beyond that. Verse 15, so they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. 
that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So we get the sense that the, the apostles are carrying on the ministry of Jesus and the people are responding to the apostles and to what they have to offer, the way that they responded to Jesus. And Peter is clearly emerging as a significant individual upon whom the Holy Spirit has great power. Now don't get confused. Peter would be the first one to say, I'm just a man, right? Remember that? In fact, he already said that. And we know because we've read the whole story, if we look further in, Peter actually goes off the rails a little bit. He needs to be corrected himself. So when you think about what's happening just by the shadow of Peter, don't get confused. It's not Peter. It's God through Peter. It's God on Peter. It's God in Peter. But it's not Peter. He's just being obedient and the Lord is blessing all over the place. And yet Luke still reports this matter-of-factly. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to get as excited about these miracles as some of us might be. But just think about what is happening, dragging these people out into the street, bringing them out on their cots and on their mats, people to be healed, people to be delivered from demonic possession. Think about that matter-of-factly, but think about all that would go into it. There had to be widespread news about the possibility of healing. Right? There had to be widespread knowledge about who was doing the healing. There had to be reasonable anticipation of healing to even bother to bring people out. Why would you even bring them out if there wasn't a reasonable anticipation that their needs would be met? Just the way that people brought the sick and diseased to Jesus, knowing that if he could spend time with them and if he would touch them, they would be healed. So there had to be all of that, and I would dare to say, all of that, all that happened here that we're reading about must have happened more than once because no one would randomly come up with this idea. Hey, let's just lay all our sick people out in the street in case a shadow comes by. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. This was happening all the time. The power of the Spirit was great in the city, on the apostles, through the apostles, hands and anyone could see anyone who who wanted to see could see that this was the lord's intent that there was a reality and there was a power in the lives of the apostles and they were channels through whom god was blessing others and not just in jerusalem not just in jerusalem the miracles are so common the preaching so consistent that word has spread beyond the borders of the city. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They were all healed. That's quite a claim. That's quite a claim. That's a report of a fact. This, this here is also understated. I, like, I love Luke's writing, but it's understated because this is the first sign in the early church of the advancement of the gospel beyond the walls of Jerusalem. This, this is the first sign of the growth and influence of the story of salvation beyond Jerusalem. And you may go, okay, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is 
when Jesus gathered his disciples, in Acts chapter 1-8, he said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world. In other words, the gospel story is moving ahead just the way Jesus said it would. Because Jesus is trustworthy. We are moving now out of Jerusalem and impacting the towns and the villages surrounding Jerusalem in the region called Judea. What do you suppose, friend, the odds are that we're going to make it to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world? I'm going to say 100%. I have read the rest of the book. Probably you have too. But here we are as part of the outermost parts, right? Recipients of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, of the gospel that has spread. So again, it's understated, but I get excited about it because it's just what Jesus said. It's just what Jesus said. And what that tells us is that God is faithful. God tells the truth. He is faithful to his word. And because his rescue mission is for the entire world, because it is his will to seek and to save the lost, because he wants to have many from every tribe and tongue and nation added to him, this mission, this church, this faith, this gospel is unstoppable. How good and gracious you are to us, to have us in mind even, Father. We thank you and praise you for your faithfulness, for your truthfulness for your spirit, for your power, and for this message of truth that by your spirit has pierced our hearts. Thank you for joining us to your church. Thank you for adding us to you. Thank you for the union we have in Christ. And thank you for the reminder that even if we find ourselves in midst of conflict and chaos and as the hymn writer says, tumult of our war, you are with us. And because you are with us, we prevail. We cannot be stopped. We prevail. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.